Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This week's episode is a Throwback Thursday episode. It is a by the book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. And this week on the podcast, it is a Throwback Thursday, and I've decided to pull a, a by the book interview from August 13th of 2020, where I interviewed Joshua Ryan Butler on his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. And in our conversation then, two and a half years ago, we talked all about hell and how the Bible talks about hell and some of the helpful frameworks we can enter into to wrap our minds around what Jesus means when he uses the word, as well as some unhelpful frameworks that have formed in the minds of many Christians what the doctrine, if you will, of hell is actually all about. And Joshua does a fantastic job in his book and does an even better job, I think, in explaining it on the podcast. It's just a condensed version, actually, of what he writes in his book of explaining why, what are we to do with this concept? Where, where does hell come from? How does the biblical story talk about hell? How have we distorted that image and have made some mistakes along the way? And so I've decided to reinsert it in the podcast because of what I said last week was I've quoted his book once again in talking about Jesus's words about lust in the heart. But one of the reasons I've wanted to put it on here is because Jesus in these last couple of sections of Matthew 5 has been talking about hell. And I know that oftentimes in the church, we simply accept things just straight through without really thinking through what the implications of those beliefs are. And Joshua will probably introduce you to some new categories, unless you already listened to this episode a couple years ago, you might be tracking with him already. But if you haven't, I think it's going to be valuable for you to tune in. And I highly encourage you to go out and buy his book and read it. Um, He does address divine judgment by God. He addresses how we can understand many of the troublesome dark sides of God. It appears in the Old Testament when he commands his people to go in and and wipe out other nations. And so Joshua's book is very thorough, but his discussion on hell is only the first third of his book. And that's really all we spent time talking about. The conversation still took us over an hour. And I think you'll see why when we get into some of the, the finer details there. But I highly recommend his book. Instead of me taking the time to kind of cover many of his points, I decided to just let you listen to it straight from his mouth. And so instead of pointing you back to August 13th, 2020, I thought I'll just bring it forward and give it to you in the present. So without any more of an introduction, I offer to you what I originally published, August 13th, is a by the book episode conversation with Joshua Ryan Butler. Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is a by-the-book episode, a conversation with Josh Butler. And today on the podcast, I've invited Josh to come and have a conversation with me about a book that he wrote called The Skeletons in God's Closet. And the first half of his book, or actually the first third of his book, deals with the difficult doctrine of hell. And today it seems that many times um, there are individuals who want to call into question the validity of the Bible's teaching on hell in an attempt to soften their understanding of what they think about the judgment of God. And then there are others who respond really harshly 
um, to that assertion, uh, claiming that because the Bible speaks about hell, we need to believe it, and therefore that settles the discussion whether we understand God or not is irrelevant. We just need to believe what the Bible says. And I've found that people have lots of knee-jerk reactions to this topic um, in multiple different directions. And what I have appreciated about Josh's book is that he is doing something similar to what I've been trying to do on this podcast for the last several months, and that is to let the Bible tell its own story. Because if we get the story right, then the understanding of hell as Jesus presents it and as the Bible unfolds it makes a lot of sense. But if we get the story wrong and we tack our idea of hell onto a story that isn't consistent with the way the Bible tells the story, then we come up with what Josh will explain to us really clearly, a lot of caricatures, these blown out of proportion ideas that have originated and are in many people's minds today, but do not actually have their roots anywhere in the Bible. And so what Josh is doing through his book and the reason why I want him on the podcast is because he's able to articulate what it is that he is saying so very clearly and so very simply while walking through a number of different passages which really help illuminate for us the logic, if you will, of what he calls the mercy of hell, which sounds a little bit of contradiction to us, but I want you to keep an open mind as you listen to Josh. I came across his book over a year ago, and it was very fitting in my own life at the time to help me understand the relationship between judgment and mercy. And I am still along for the ride, and so you'll notice in this conversation that I really give the floor to Josh. I really like his flow of thought. I really want him to lay out his thoughts for you um, so that you can understand, wow, this actually fits really well with the biblical story, even if it challenges some of the things that you've held to all your life. And so I've been noticing in my mind that what creates such animosity between some who say there's no way there could be a hell, God would never do that to people, versus those who vehemently defend it, I've noticed that oftentimes both those who want you to believe in hell the way it's described and those who reject it oftentimes are both speaking about the caricatures. And so it's interesting if we begin to address that and say, what is the Bible really saying about some of these passages? Are there different ways of explaining it? Are there different ways of understanding it? And in my experience, Josh Butler is one of the best I've come across who's been able to articulate this in ways that not only make sense, but elevate the beauty and the glory of Jesus in the gospel at the same time. And so I offer to you a conversation that I have with Josh Butler. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. We have another By the Book episode today, a conversation with Josh Butler. And Josh is the lead pastor of Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. And he is the author of The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War, as well as the book The Pursuing God, A Reckless, Irrational, Obsessed Love That's Dying to Bring Us Home. Josh enjoys helping people who wrestle with tough topics of the Christian faith, as well as reading, hiking, and playing guitar. Josh's wife, Holly, daughter, Aiden, and sons, James and Jacob, enjoy spending time with friends over great meals. 
and exploring the scenic beauty of the Southwest. And I'm just really excited to have Josh on the show with us today. Welcome, Josh. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate you jumping on and agreeing to talk with us. Um, Josh has, in fact, written two books, and I've asked him if he would come on the the podcast today. Um, I have only read one of his books to this point, and so I don't want to talk about how his second book has changed my life because to this point it hasn't yet. But his first book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, was a book that was very um, gripping. It was a perfectly timed in my own life. And um, the first third of this book is under the subtitle, The Mercy of Hell. And so just my time interacting with Josh and reading his material and seeing things that he's posting online, I thought it would be really valuable for us to begin a conversation there. And Josh, I really um, want to just give you the floor to share a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, maybe a little bit about yourself and some of what led you to the writing of this book several years ago, um, some of the the, uh, the insights that you've gained. Obviously, I, I know you'll share with us, but it, it's always interesting to me to hear an author's backstory and what leads them to writing the books that they write. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of the backstory behind the book was really um, just these were questions that I wrestled with myself when I came to faith. So I was in college, uh, I was at the University of Oregon, I had this encounter with Jesus that uh, really kind of turned my world uh, upside down or maybe better yet, right side up, you know, and and immediately had friends asking, you know, like, man, Sue, you think I'm going to hell now? You know, I'm like, dude, I didn't even bring up hell. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just, in, you know, enraptured with the goodness of God and how great Jesus is. Uh, but it was a question a lot of my friends had. And over time, it starts to become one of yours, too. Like, what do I think about this? How do I make sense of this? Um, and there were a lot of caricatures that not only my friends had, but I didn't know what else to think, you know? So there was what I call kind of the caricature of the underground torture chamber. And I think the concern many would have even with God's character, like, does God have kind of this vindictive dark side? And so the premise kind of backdrop behind the book is just that, um, is going, I think a lot of us fear that God has these skeletons in the closet, these tough topics, these sort of dark doctrines that I think the concern is if we were to really open up the closet doors or open up scripture and take a closer look, I think the concern is that we might find that God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. And yet I found that that's because I think we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. And so what I wanted to do in the book was offer some paradigm shifts that have been really helpful to me over the years in uh, kind of reframing uh, maybe the way that we're looking at these, getting a healthier, biblical, historically orthodox, kind of robust understanding of these doctrines where we see them arising because of the goodness of God rather than in spite of our contradiction to it. Like that's my biggest end game behind the, the project was really hoping to help people reclaim a greater confidence that God is good through and through, like all the way down in his very bones. And really that's what this has been like in my own life of pressing deeper into these topics was just finding, I think a lot of the assumptions that I had that a lot of people have is really more of a caricature of what the church has historically taught. My goal wasn't to reinvent theology to try and say something brand new, um, but really more to reclaim a healthier uh, understanding of what, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, I mean, there's, there's nuances in how some of the traditions would approach it, but there are some big picture themes that um, I think are just really powerful in maybe reframing 
how we how we look at these from some of the caricatures. So that's some of the backstory behind the book. Myself personally, now I've been a pastor for uh, about 17 years, uh, 15 of those years in my home state of Oregon, uh, in Portland, Oregon. And then about two years ago, we moved out to the Southwest here in Phoenix area. And that's a story of its own for another time, maybe. But um, yeah, we've been loving ministry out here. My wife, Holly, and I, we've been married for uh, going on 13 years. And we've got three kids, a 10-year-old daughter and six and five-year-old boys. And yeah, we're just loving, loving it out here. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's so exciting. I've only been to the the Northwest um, once, and it's beautiful. So um, yeah, I'm a little little envious of that, of that time in Oregon, and I've never even been to Arizona, so I'm not sure about all that. Um, <laughs> but but I think what really stood out to me was um, in your in your book. I appreciate you talking about some of those caricatures, and then you simply reclaiming something that's historic. Because I know when people, um, I know in the context that I'm a part of here. Um, in, in North Carolina, um, the moment somebody begins to say that you're looking into hell or you're beginning to wonder how, how are we supposed to view this? You know, everyone's radar goes up and oh my goodness, you're one of those people that doesn't believe in hell. You don't believe in the Bible. What in the world are you doing? Why are you flirting with these particular issues? And the thing I appreciated about your book so much was your flow of thought and your logic and your approach wanting to capture the beauty and the, the, the compassion of Jesus and try to look at a, a doctrine that appears that, that does. It seems harsh. It seems odd. It seems um, how do we make sense of this in light of a God who comes to us and is eager to rescue us in Jesus? How do we merge that together? And so you've mm-hmm. also spent a lot of your time talking about what, what narrative are we in? What, what story do we believe we are telling that has a natural conclusion to it um, of of redemption, number one. Mm. So, um, you know, Josh, take the time you need or however you'd like to frame it, but how would you sort of bring us along your thought process in in maybe how we ought to be thinking about this as Christians? Yes. Yeah, so the first paradigm shift, uh, I would say, has to do with the story, or as you mentioned, the narrative. I think the first paradigm shift we need has to do with what is the storyline or the bigger picture that the doctrine of health fits into. I think many people have what I would call a problematic story, uh, is what I call kind of the earth now, heaven, hell later storyline, right? And so in this story, it's sort of like, I live here on earth now, uh, one day I'm going to die, and God's either going to whisk me up to heaven or down to hell, right? And so this kind of earth now, heaven, hell, later storyline, there's a couple of problems with this. Um, but one of the problems I'd say is that it it makes heaven and hell kind of these co-equal competing counterparts, right? They're, they're sort of, um, you know, these one's the positive side of the battery, the other's the negative side of the battery. One's yin, the other's yang kind of thing. And they're... Uh, and they don't really have much relevance to life today, right? They're kind of just about the afterlife. They're not necessarily about um, reality here and now. And one of the problems with this is that it's not the way that Scripture talks about heaven and hell, really. It's a, this co-equal competing counterparts. To give an example, if you were to go to Bible Gateway and type into the search feature, um, heaven, hell, and uh, I'm using NIV, use uh most translations, you kind of put in heaven, hell, and click search. It's going to show you how many times those two words appear together, like in the same verse in the biblical story. And most people I found assume when I ask, like, how many times do you think? 
people will say, I don't know, a couple hundred, you know, and so many people are shocked to hit search and find like the answer is actually zero. Uh, there are no times in the biblical story where heaven and hell appear together in the same verse. Now, uh, heaven shows up and hell shows up and they definitely have a relationship to each other. But scripture doesn't tend to talk about them the same way that we tend to as kind of heaven and hell, these two co-equal competing counterparts. Now, hell does have a counter or I'm sorry, heaven does have a counterpart in scripture. Um, only it's not hell, it's actually earth. And so if we do that same experiment, put in heaven, earth into the search feature and, and click search, um, what you'll find is that heaven and earth appear together roughly 200 times. I think NIV, 212 times, depending on which translation you use, uh, results vary a little bit, but, but we're talking roughly 200 times in the biblical story that heaven and earth appear together. Uh, this is the dominant kind of uh, relationship that heaven has is, is with earth itself. And so I think one of the first things that I would suggest is we get hell wrong because we get heaven and earth wrong. And if we reclaim mm. the biblical story of heaven and earth, the smaller subtopic of hell is going to start to make more sense. And so the what is the storyline then, the biblical storyline of heaven and earth? Well, uh, three movements say heaven and earth are created good by God. They're torn apart by sin. And they're destined for reconciliation, right? So heaven and earth are, A, they're created good by God, B, they're torn apart by sin, C, they're destined for reconciliation. So in Genesis, we see they're created good by God. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates them good. God creates a good world. Um, but, uh, you know, the book goes into more detail. But in short, um, you know, uh, when we sin, the relationship between heaven and earth is torn. There's a rupture in kind of the fabric of creation. And and uh, it's it's here that we see the destructive power of sin wreaking havoc in God's good world. And yet the hope that we have for the future is not to get whisked out of earth away into heaven. Or The hope that we have for the future is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. I love in Colossians 1 where Paul says that, uh, through Jesus, um, he is the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on to say, God has reconciled to himself all things through Christ's blood shed on the cross, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, bringing peace to heaven and earth, reconciling heaven and earth, all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And what I love about that, he's painting this picture. Jesus is the Savior who reconciles heaven and earth. Like Jesus brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. And this isn't peripheral to the gospel. It's actually part of what Jesus is going to the cross to do. It's through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is reconciling heaven and earth. He's bringing back together what the destructive power of sin has torn apart. I also love when um, Jesus is raised from the dead and he sees his disciples and in Matthew. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't tell his disciples, all authority in heaven has been given to me, so I'll see you when you get there. <laughs> like he says, all authority <laughs> in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And why has Jesus been given this authority? Why has the Father entrusted this authority to his Son? Well, in Ephesians 1, we read that it's to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And so this is central to the hope of the gospel, is that um, right now, earth groans under its the weight of sin and decay, Romans 8 tells us, but it's longing for uh, the redemption that God's bringing, where he, the, the groaning of creation, where God actually uh, restores creation from the destructive power of sin. And um, 
Revelation 21, just kind of final image. I love when John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And it's interesting to note first the direction of movement. This isn't us going up to heaven. This is God bringing heaven to earth. And second, it's just to note the imagery of the wedding, right? Like this is, what do weddings celebrate? They celebrate union, the two becoming one. And this wedding is no different. This is a wedding where God is bringing together heaven and earth, east and west, good folks and bad folks, weak and strong. God's mission is to reconcile creation through Christ. So we could say, you know, that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. And I think, uh, you know, it's in light of the storyline that the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. Because to long for the dawning of the light is by its very nature to long for the banishing of darkness. Like to hope for the healing of the body is implicitly to hope for the excising out of the disease. To pray with Jesus, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is by its very nature to pray that all those forces and persons that rebels that stand unrepentantly opposed to the goodness and glory of God's kingdom would be pushed to the periphery where they can no longer hurt and destroy. So I think from one angle, we can say like the hope of the gospel, the storyline is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. I think another way of saying that exact same thing is to say that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. <laughs> like, mm. like God is on a mission yeah. to get the hell out of earth. And the funny thing about that statement is it kind of works in both storylines, but it means two different, very different things. Like in the problematic storyline, it means God's on a mission to get us the hell out of Earth, right? Like Earth's going to hell in a handbasket, and God's mm. like, hey, we, are, we just got to get out of Dodge. Beam me up, Scotty. God's like, all right, I'm going to whisk you away from Earth up into heaven. Uh, it's kind of an escapist storyline about getting away from the problems. Uh, in the biblical storyline, though, it's that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on Earth. That mm -hmm. God is so committed to the humanity that he's brought up from the dust, from the creation that he's made good, that's been tarnished and wreaked havoc on by sin. But God is committed to actually reconciling heaven and earth and restoring humanity through Christ, through all those who will receive uh, the salvation that he's accomplished, his pursuit to heal and reconcile and restore. So that's, that's kind of the first shift. And what we see in here is, I think, a very different picture of the character of God in the two stories. So in the problematic story, the character of God, God can kind of look like he's got this vindictive dark side, this villain, you know, that kind of thing. But in the biblical story, what we see is that the story is driven by the goodness of God through and through. Like it's because of God's goodness that he's created a good heavens, a good earth. It's because of God's goodness that he's patient with sin and destruction that we've unleashed right now. Um, and yet it's because of God's goodness that he will not ultimately be patient forever, but is coming to reconcile heaven and earth. And it's because of God's goodness that he won't turn a blind eye, but he'll deal with unrepentant sin, you know? And, and yeah. we start to see there, you know, this is maybe the next shift, but that the, the, like we're the ones who unleash the destructive power of hell in God's good world through sin, you know, and, and it's because of God's goodness that he stands opposed to the sin that tears creation apart. Yeah. Well, that's really, I mean, I, I just, to, to hear you put it in, put it in the context of reclaiming heaven and earth and recognizing again, um, that the counterpart to heaven is not hell, 
it is the earth and how we once, you know, I, I mean, I, I oftentimes picture those first couple chapters in Genesis as the time when heaven and earth overlapped and God walked freely with his people in a garden, but then our choice to um, rule the earth and make decisions of what was good and evil on our own terms <laughs> is I think maybe what you'll allude to here and that it unleashed quite a bit of hell on earth and you don't have to read more than the next chapter to see murder and you know justifiable murder of way worse consequences with Lamech and, and so on. And then of course, watching the whole world spiral uh, rapidly out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit that may be a new concept for some is to think about hell, maybe almost as an adjective or something, you know, to get the hell out of us. Um, and as opposed to this being a, a location, maybe primarily that we oftentimes think about it in, could you talk a little bit about that shift um, and how you think the Bible speaks to that? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the main, sh- so here the second paradigm shift, I think, would be like where, uh, where, where does hell come from in relation to the world, right here, you know? And and I think here would be the shift of going. Um, we're the ones who unleash the destructive power of hell in the world, not not God in that sense, right? So, I mean, God's mm-hmm. sovereign, and he's in, in that sense, like he's, he's sovereign over everything, but in the terms of agency of willful, volitional um, rebellion, all like we're the crack through which the wildfire of sin spreads into God's good creation. So to give an example of that, um, James 3, I think is really interesting, where he's talking about the power of the tongue. And he says, um, you know, consider how... Uh, great forest can be set up flame by just a small spark all it takes is that little spark at the camp stove you know and, and the whole forest can go go up in flames and yeah. he says similarly like that's like the power of your tongue which all it takes you know these words that that we use can tear down other people around us they can tear down community they can tear down our lives um but what's interesting he goes on to say um and when it does like when the tongue unleashes this destruction it is itself set on fire by hell. And so James is saying there implicitly like the, the power of hell like makes its, it can make its way into the world through our tongue, through our words. Um, that when that person is gossiping in the cubicle next to you, like she's not just being annoying, like she's like breathing hell into the office in a sense, right? Like mm, breathing flames. Yeah. And so I think it's this picture of going, um, it's not to say that hell's not a place, you know, uh, that, but, but it's also a power, you know, and it's the, the power of hell is unleashed in the world through sin. That if we had not rebelled, if we hadn't bent the knee to Satan, so to speak, to the lie, to the serpent, the enemy, um, he would have no foothold in God's good world shy of our rebellion, you know? And uh, yeah. so... So that picture there, and then I think it's interesting where I think we see this power depicted in both, um, to, you know, kind of big picture levels. We think, where do we see the power of hell? I think we see it in big picture levels, things like we'd all kind of go our bad, like war and sex trafficking and genocide and these things that just rage and destroy, wreak destruction, God's good world. But I also think we see it in very personal, up close, intimate levels in the human heart, like the vices of the human heart, things like pride and lust and rage and greed and these things that we all struggle with so it's interesting to me jesus in matthew 5 he speaks about um you know uh lust so i remember years ago working against sex trafficking i, I, I had an internship thailand burma uh working with 
an indigenous organization on the ground for a few months, just phenomenal work that they were doing. And we got to be a part of like combating trafficking in, in their community. So horrible, the situation that was happening. And, and I was a new Christian at the time. And one of the things that God really convicted me, I was reading the Bible and I got to Matthew five and Jesus says, um, you think just because you haven't had adultery, committed adultery, essentially, that, that you're all right. But I tell you, if you even looked at a woman lustfully, that's the root of the problem, in essence, right? Like, you're in danger of the fire right. of hell. And what struck me was um, the image I had in my head was like, dude, I want to I want to prune back this wicked tree in God's world, so to speak. Like, you think of sex trafficking, something horrible we'd all generally kind of look at and go, that's bad, you know? I wanted to prune back the evil branches and Jesus wants to get rid of sex, sex trafficking too, only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. He only, not only wants to get rid of sex trafficking, he wants to get rid of lust, you know? So it's almost like I'm wanting to yes. prune back the branches on this tree. He wants to dig out the root, you know? And so I've got the hedge clippers. Mm. He's got the shovel. I mean, he wants to actually dig out the root of evil in God's good world. And that root is in me. Um I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, the famous line, like the line separating good and evil runs not between countries or classes or political parties, but it runs right through the middle of every human heart. Yes. And, and that reality of going, man, the, the problem, the problem that unleashes the power of hell, like that's, that's inside of us, you know, that's, that's inside of me. Similarly, was working in Rwanda later and later in life, Cambodia as well, but in Rwanda uh, that had just seen the horror of genocide. You know, and, and, um, and at the time, just going, man, just grappling with the horror of that, but also seeing in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, you know, you essentially, you know, you think you haven't murdered your neighbor, so you're okay. But I say, even if you said raka, like called them a fool, like this kind of rage or anchoring your heart towards them, um, you're guilty as well, you know. So Jesus doesn't lower the bar on human sin. He raises the bar and he reveals that uh it's in all of us inside the human heart. And so the image I had there was like, if genocide was like this wildfire raging and tearing a country apart, the spark of rage and prideful, whatever arrogance over people like, like that existed in me as well. It's like the spark, part of the conviction of the gospel, the spark that sets the world aflame, like the wicked, the root wicked root that gives rise to the wicked trees in our world. Like that exists within us. And I think the good news of the gospel is that Jesus's question to us is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? Can you get that root out yourself? All this kind of, you know, his question is rather, will you let me heal you? I think part wow. of the gospel is Jesus. He comes with the shovel and he's like, will you let me dig up the root and restore you with my spirit? You know, will you let me snuff out the flame, quench it with his divine love and, and actually let him restore and work the transformation to, to really make us more fully human again. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm so glad you brought up that section of your book because when I, when I read that section, I mean, my copy of your book is filled with underlines and I can't tell you how many people I've used that illustration from Matthew mm -hmm. five, the one you just shared where you say, sure, I'm excited to, rid the world of sex trafficking, but Jesus's standards are even higher. Um, he wants to tear out the root. And if that root is in me, then it's, it's so humbling, maybe even too weak of a word to use for it, Josh, but it's when, when you're reading a book and you're trying to wrestle with big topics and then you bring it down 
on a pastoral care level for people um, to wrestle. Um, and I think that the posture that you're um, attempting to get at God's heart for people, Jesus's invitation, will you let me heal you? Um, you your book manages with that illustration to, um, to change our posture. Um, because it seems like what you're, what you're really helping us see is what, what is our mentality toward the lost? What is our mentality toward those who don't know Christ? Is it one of pleading and compassion and earnest desire to see them willingly want to be healed? And then of course we have to ask whether we have that same desire deep within us. So I, I found that unbelievably refreshing, convicting, encouraging, exciting. Jesus has come to heal us, but we can resist him if we want. And that's a, that's a kind of a scary thought, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, the, you know, so those, those two, I think, kind of set the stage. And then I think the the next three paradigm shifts are related to one another. And they're um, me responding, you know, what I what I would call uh, the underground torture chamber, right? Like, so if you were to ask folks, okay, well, where does hell go when Jesus kicks it out? You know, when Jesus kicks the hell out of earth, so to speak, when he, he restores and redeems and kicks the power of hell out, um, right. where where does it go? And I think if you were to ask most folks, the image that a lot of people have, kind of the popular image, is um, what I call the underground torture chamber. You know, it's way down deep in the belly of the earth. God's kind of vindictively torturing people, and it's this chamber where they really want to get out, but um, uh, but God's like too bad. You know, so look at each of those, each for a minute here. The um, what I want to suggest is that when we reframe it back in the biblical story again, the A, the location's not underground. B, the purpose is not torture, and C, the construction is not a chamber. And here's what I mean by two. Let's start with the first. So uh, that where is it at, the location that it's not underground, uh, but rather the dominant New Testament image is that it's outside the city. The primary word that gets used uh, for hell, is translated in English as hell, as hell, is Gehenna. And Gehenna, it surprised people, many people to know, it's an actual location. It was a place known as the Valley of Hinnom. So uh, Gez, the Greek for valley, Hinnom is a transliteration of Hinnom. Uh, Gehenna was a place that we see a lot in the Old Testament called the Valley of Hinnom that was just outside Jerusalem's walls. And um, it was a place that, uh, you know, so this wasn't in a vortex far, far away. It wasn't deep down in the belly of the earth. It was a place you could Google Maps and go walk to, right? And it was a place that had a dark and destructive history in the Old Testament. It was a place associated with child sacrifice. So this is the place where often in the prophets, they, they rail against it as this place where Israel, uh, people would leave Jerusalem. They leave the city gates they go outside the city. They go into the valley and they would uh, burn, you know, set, set the flames to this God Molech and they would burn their children. And for the prophets, this place became almost like a, a symbol or a signpost of just how corrupt and far gone the people had become in their rebellion mm. against God. And so the two main associations I think we should have with Gehenna uh, here are it's a place of idolatry and a place of injustice. Right? So when you think about idolatry, um, this was 
a place where I like to think of it as like that cheap hotel on the outskirts of town. Like this is where Israel would go to cheat on God with other lovers, right? And um, the, the Jerusalem and the temple, that was like the most intimate place, like where God's dwelling, his very presence dwelt with his people. You can think of the Holy of Holies in the temple as being like the, the bedroom, you know, so to speak, where God's uh, union with his people, his divine indwelling presence was at the center of his life with his bride. And, as the people would leave and go out, kind of go outside the city, it was like they're going out to this cheap hotel with these other lovers, these gods, these idols that um, would ultimately lead them to their destruction, to enslaving them, to being like back like when they were in Egypt. You know, they, they it led to a bad place. And so God rightly gets angry at Gehenna. It's like he exposes the fair. It's like walking in on your spouse with someone else and going, no, like not because he's a jerk, but because a he wants his bride for himself she's betraying the covenant and b he recognizes this is going to lead to their own destruction you know so out of love um and a a proper jealousy wants all of our life with him as his people uh god gets upset so it's associated with idolatry and it's also associated with injustice this is a place where israel murdered her children and if she's married to God as his bride, that means they're his children too, right? And so it's, uh, I don't know, I think we often think of idolatry and injustice as these two separate things, but in the biblical story, they're links. Uh, Jeremiah talks about um, this place of the Valley of Hinnom being this place, Gehenna, it's this place that you worship these foreign gods. And he goes right on the next breath to say, you, uh, you, uh, was it, it, it's soaked in the blood of the innocent. Right. And so the idea, I think, is when we when we reject God, when we replace him or displace him with other things, whether that's sex or money or power or like these things, these idols represented, uh, it unleashes destruction in God's good world. And so all that is wrapped up with Gehenna. It's this image for idolatry, for injustice, for rebelling against people. And so the hope of the prophets, though, became, we read in Isaiah and other places, that the hope of the prophets become that God is a good king. And because he's good, he's returning to Jerusalem. He's coming back to his city. He's going to restore his temple. He's going to reestablish his kingdom. And he's going to kick the rebellion outside the city walls into guess where? <laughs> like out into Gehenna, right? And so mm. it was this image of like the victory of God, the good king who was returning and who was going to kick the rebellion almost in a sense like into the back to the destructive mess that it made uh because what happened in gehenna didn't stay in gehenna right it wasn't like vegas or like ultimately the idols that were set up out there were ultimately placed in the holy of holies in the temple and um you know sin is not content to stay on its own like it wants to wreak havoc and expand and take over and dominate and destroy it's like the nazis or you know like sin wants to wreak havoc and because god is good he's going to come back and he's going to put sin back in its place where it won't be able to wreak havoc anymore wow yeah keep going josh this is great (laughs) so so that all that's wrapped up with kind of the question of hell's location like where is it going to be you know and um and I, I don't know in the sense of like, okay, here's a map and, you know, 
North Dakota or, you know, or like Brazil or, you know, scripture doesn't give us that kind of detail, that kind of image. But I do think that scripture gives us uh, clear imagery and it speaks to it's outside the city. It's outside the kingdom. It's uh, it's opposed to the ways of the kingdom. And so it's not allowed to be inside and wreak havoc. It's not allowed to participate in the life of the kingdom because it stands opposed by its very nature to the ways of the kingdom and the person of the king. Yeah. So there's that. Then the the next shift has to do with the purpose of hell. And there I'd say like, it's not torture, it's protection, Uh, protection from one angle, or you could say containment from another. And and here's what I mean by that. So I think a lot of people have the image of it being like this torture chamber again, where the purpose is to torture. It's kind of a vindictive dark side on God's part. And uh, I think once we've reframed it back here into the biblical story, uh, we really see that the purpose is not torture, it's protection. Like God is a good king who protects his kingdom from those things that want to uh, tear it apart. There's a, um, I'm going to pull it up here because I'm trying to remember, there's a verse that I love in Zechariah. I'm trying to find here where it is. Um, Second. Well, uh, maybe first, you know, I'll kind of share with, um, I love C.S. Lewis. I, back in the day, I was reading the, you know, Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. And yeah. there's this one story, you know, a famous story in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where um, the, basically there's this island kingdom and the king's been away. And so people have taken over this corrupt governor named Gumpas and like uh, oppression and slavery and injustice. All these things are running rampant in the land. And eventually the good king comes back and word spreads that he's there. And um, he comes back kind of discreetly at first and word spreads. And when word spreads that the king's back in the castle, like basically everybody by and large, those who have stood against him and his reign, like get out of Dodge, right? But then there are also folks who have been longing and hoping and put banking on like the good king's coming back and they've been living their lives like aligned in hope for his coming kingdom. And so when they hear like they're stoked and they come running towards the the kingdom, right, to to the castle. Um, But there are some who try and stay. So there's this corrupt governor, Gumpas, and he tries to work out a deal with the king, this conversation where he's like, essentially, he's like, hey, how about I, I cut you in? I'm part of the profits. You let me kind of keep running my mafia scam thing on the side and you'll get some of the profits in. It'll be good. You can still be the good guy in the eyes of the people. And when he's trying to work out this deal with the king, everything in my kids is saying no. Like when they hear this, they're like, no, like don't compromise with the bad powers. He needs to go, you know? And the king responds. He says, uh, the only remaining question is whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging or with one. You may choose what you prefer. (laughs) So he's essentially like, either get out or I'm kicking you out, you know? And my kids are like cheering, you know, and and every, when we hear it in the context of fairy tale, my point is like, we get stoked. Like it's, it's like, dude, the good King wants to protect his kingdom from those things that stand opposed to its peace and flourishing. And in the heart of a child, that doesn't come across as vindictive that comes across as protective and a good sense and our hearts light up and go, yes, that's what we need. That's that's what we want. And similarly, I suggest that that's, yeah, like that's what's going on in the biblical story. So there's this, um, 
this verse in, uh, let's see where to go, Zechariah 2, verse 4 to 5, where the prophet is holding out hope. God's going to come back, good king. And he says, on that day, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And so that, that's kind of this cool image. I love that image. Jerusalem, it'll be a city without walls. And he's kind of going like the kingdom. It's uh, God's tearing down the walls to bring in anyone, everyone who wants to come in, be a part of this, because the great number of people and animals that are going to be coming inside. That's exciting, but that also uh, was would have been scary for the ancient honest, because you're going, okay, well, without the walls, God, how do we keep the bad guys out? You know, How do we keep the enemies yeah. who are trying to invade and destroy? And Zechariah goes on to answer it in the next sentence. He says, I, God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. I will be its glory within. And what strikes me there is that um, God protects his kingdom, not with tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. He protects it with his very presence. And that God's presence is experienced as both a wall, wall of fire to those outside, the enemies who stand opposed to it, you know, that protects his kingdom from them. Uh, and yeah. it's also experienced as glory within. Like within, it's actually his presence is is glorious. And we see there, I think the image is that God is protecting his kingdom by containing destructive power of sin outside and containing unrepentant rebels who stand opposed to his ways. And you can almost think of it as like a Tupperware container. Hell is like a Tupperware container for evil. So, you know, it keeps it contained so that it can't yeah. destroy. Uh, there's another passage I love. Isaiah 11.9 is a famous one. Where Isaiah, God's saying there, he says, uh, on that day, basically like when my kingdom comes, God says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. And so we see the picture, like God's kingdom come, his presence is reestablished. The holy mountain is Mount Zion or Jerusalem. And so again, it's this image of his kingdom centered from his capital of Jerusalem. And part of the impact is that those things that currently harm or destroy, like the power of sin, death, and hell, they won't be able to anymore. Because God's presence will protect his kingdom. And he goes on to say, For the earth will be full of the knowledge, full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the picture there is like God's um God's kingdom, his, his, you know, his the hope for Jerusalem is the hope of the world, right? In the sense that like uh God's setting up the city of God, um, it it's hope not just for there's like, oh, that's that's great for you guys over there. It's actually the center point from which his kingdom spreads throughout the earth. And we see that picture in in the New Testament where Jerusalem becomes much bigger than kind of little podunk city. Like you read Revelation 21, 22, and the New Jerusalem, it's described as being like, I, mean, I think it's like 1,200 miles wide by 1,200 miles long by 1,200 miles high. Like that's not a city, right. it's a continent, you know? And it's almost as if yeah. Jerusalem has expanded now and the, the, it probably would have fit scholars say like around then what it seemed like about the size of the known world at the time, like this massive giant city coming down. So I think the picture there is that um, what Jerusalem represented speaks to this, the city of God, the kingdom of God that comes with his presence to reconcile and heal and restore. And yet God protects his kingdom from those people and things that stand opposed to it and him and his ways by containing it outside. Yeah, so that that's kind of the the, the that would be that next paradigm shift that the purpose is not torture but protection. Yeah, I think you had a section 
too, um, and maybe you'll get to this, so cut me off if you do, but I, I actually uh, quoted a portion of your book at length a couple of weeks ago on my podcast as I was working through uh, Revelation 9 um, and the, the torment that um, that many of the these uh, stinging locusts will inflict upon people and using your um, distinction between torture and torment. So are you going to... I think you know where that's coming from. It's probably coming from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, am I getting ahead of you, or are you going to um, weave that into the next section, or how would you like to talk about that? Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I can weave that into the next section for sure. Yeah, okay, so great. The last, kind of the final paradigm shift, um, it might be helpful here to just kind of recap, summarize where we've been so far. So yes, the first paradigm shift has to do with the storyline, going it's not earth now, heaven and hell later. It's God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. That's the storyline. Uh, second one had to do with the origin of hell. And that's going like, dude, we're the ones who unleash its destructive power into the world. Um, the third one had to do with where does hell go? Like, where is its location? And that was saying, hey, it's not underground. It's outside the city. It's the image. The fourth one, they had to go, what's the purpose? When it's not torture, it's protection. Uh, then the f- uh, protection by containment. And then the fifth one and final one here is... Um, what you might call it structure construction. And that's the question going, is it a chamber? Uh, no. And I don't know. I have a good word for the alternative here, <laughs> but let me explain what I mean. <laughs> I, I think yeah. the, the caricature that some people have is that um, the, the way hell works that afterwards that people are like, God, I'm so sorry. I love you. I want to follow you. Like they're repenting. They're going, God, I'll do anything. I just want to be with you. And God's like, are too bad. Like, you had your shot, you missed it kind of thing. Um, and it's this strange reversal of the gospel where we're the ones pursuing God and he's the one unwilling to be found. And I think what we see uh, depicted more in the gospel is kind of the inverse of that is that um, what we call the hardening of the heart, right? So we see this theme in scripture of people hardening their hearts against God and that when we do, we become more hardened and hardened and uh, almost like um, solidified and encased in our rebellion against uh, resistance to and um, yeah, rebellion against him. Right. And so, uh, and the, there is a sense in which, you know, I think where God goes, Hey, too late uh, that we see some of Jesus's teaching where it's like, dude, after the, the gates are shut and Hey, we want it, you know? Um, but I think the, the logic that's going on there is not that, um, people have suddenly become repentant. It's like God's calling, like in judgment, God is calling out the condition of our hearts and going, yeah, you don't, you don't want me, you know, that, that, uh, it's almost like the, the kid who is like, mommy, I hate you, mommy, I hate you, mommy, I hate you, you know? And then he sees ice cream come out of the table and like, mommy, I love you. You know, and it's like, hey, you don't really love it. You just want the goodies. You just want the ice cream on the table. And I think that's kind of the sense where like, then there's the kingdom and people are like, oh, I want the good stuff there. Um, but God's calling out in judgment. Like, dude, your heart is set against me. Like you have hardened your heart. It's my way. Um, and so the, as C.S. Lewis kind of famous said, like the doors of hell are locked from the inside kind of thing, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it, it's, locked through our unrepentant will. It's not in spite of our repentant will. It's not that we're repentant and wanting. It's actually um, our our unrepentant will against God is what 
hardens us off and cordons us off from the beauty of his kingdom. Right? So there's that. And to use an example here of going like, okay, well, I'd actually say, man, that's, um, some people would say like, okay, well, that's better than the caricature, but still, is that the best possible way, you know? And, and the image I like to use is, um, the image of the gospel is a wedding proposal, which is true. I think we see Christ as the groom. He's inviting us to become part of the bride, become part of the church, you know? And yeah. if you think of the gospel as a wedding proposal, what Jesus is like going, dude, the cross, I'll go all the way to hell and back to be with you forever. I cross any distance. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm for you. Uh, but then there's the question of like, do we want to say yes? Do we want to receive that pursuit? And as far as I can tell, there's really, um, if we say no, that we don't want the wedding proposal, we don't want union with God. Uh, I, as far as I can see, there's really only four possible responses that God could have to that. Now, the first response is for God to say, hey, marry me uh, and bring in your old lovers. You know, and this is kind of going, hey, why can't God just ignore sin? Like, why can't I just say, hey, hey, marry me and bring in the idols from Gehenna, the injustice, the old world, all those kind of things. Um, why can't God redeem the world and just kind of wink or turn a blind eye at sin? And the problem with that is that, dude, redemption hasn't really happened. You know, if hmm, yeah. babies are still crying and nations are still warring and all the same junk that tore the world, old world apart are still there, then it hasn't really been redeemed. And so that's really a sham wedding proposal. And the reality is like God wants all of us. He, he wants, uh, he wants all of our life and who we are. He's not willing to settle for some idols on the side. That's just going to take us back to the problem, you know, the place we were before. So I don't think that's a good option. Second option, say it's for God to say, hey, uh, marry me or I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, like essentially to uh, bring the gun <laughs> to the wedding proposal. Hey, marry me or I'll, I'll snuff you. And that's I, I, what I would call, you know, what some sometimes has been some, some depictions of what we call like annihilationism and uh, the idea that why can't God just annihilate the unrepentant sinner? And I think the problem there is A, that that's a really bad way to propose. You know, I hope no one here is thinking about doing that. Um, and and B, I, I'd say it's got a couple of issues, but one I'd say is that I think it minimizes the scope and power of Christ's resurrection, that Jesus has conquered our annihilation in the grave. He's taken our death and destruction. As in Adam, I'll die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. And the question is now, we're no longer able to hide in the grave from God. The question is, how do we stand in relation to the God before whom we're raised. Yeah. And the, the third one I'd say the option is like marry me or I'll lock you in the basement. And this is kind of a universalism where it's sort of like, well, why can't God use hell to kind of purge people of evil and then get them into a space for the kingdom. And that's, I think kind of what we see in like the, the Rob Bell uh, love wins seems to be a version mm -hmm. kind of along those lines with those kind of things. And I'd say the problem there is a couple ones, but Again, it's a really bad way to propose. And I think it misunderstands the nature of how love works. Like you can't coerce or, you know, punish someone into loving you. I think for some people, they have the caricature of the underground torture chamber. And they're kind of like, well, God, can't you at least either put them out of their misery or find some constructive use for it? But it's often it's responding to a caricature to begin with. And it's missing the fact that like, dude, abducting someone and 
uh, you know, doing that to him doesn't actually incite love, at least not a true healthy love. And I think it also misunderstands the nature of redemption. Like the problem is not God's unwillingness to redeem. The problem is our unwillingness to be redeemed, like our refusal mm. of the offer that, and that he's made. So I think that works. So the fourth and final posture, like the biblical one is for God to say, Hey, marry me or go your own way. You know? And I think that's what we see in the gospel is that God has come for us. He said, I'll go to hell and back. I, I want to be, with you forever. I'm inviting you into life with me. And yet God also respects us enough to, you know, like what you should do with an unrequited marriage proposal is <laughs> let, let them yeah. go. Away, you know? And so to, to speak to the thing you mentioned about torment versus torture. Uh, so I, I, um, I, I talk about this in the parable of, or the story about Lazarus and the rich man where Jesus is, um, giving us this, I mean, that, that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, so Jesus talking about Lazarus and the rich man. Um, but often I think the, that that's one of the places people go to when they're thinking of the torture chamber. And so I, I talk in depth about that story in the book. Um, but one of the observations make is like, there's a difference between torment and torture, right? That often um, when we think about, uh, when we, we hear the word torment, we, you know, one is outside in and the other is inside out. So torture outside in, I can have a headache um, because you came over to my house and you're hitting me over the head with a two by four, right? Uh, that would be torture. Um, or I can have a headache because um, I haven't slept much lately and whatever else and I got a migraine or something internally in me, right? One arises from the in, outside in, the other from the inside out. And I would suggest that what we see happening in the biblical story is uh, the nature of hell is that it's it's torment from the inside out, right? And so, even to use that Lazarus and the rich man, um, the one of the words where he says, "I'm in agony in this flame." The the word is odunamai, and the word odunamai it shows up uh, in two other places in um, the New Testament. One is when uh, when Jesus's parents realize that he is not with them when he's a kid and they're at the temple, he's like 12 years old or whatever. And so uh, they realize they're missing Jesus. He hasn't been with them for a day or whatever. And, and suddenly they, Odunamai, like they have this, uh, this um, agony because not because anyone's mugging them or beating them up, but because something that they love is missing, is lost, is gone. You know, mm. they look for him. The other place is when Paul in Acts is um, leaving Ephesus and the Ephesian elders are saying goodbye and they realize that he's uh, going to die. Like the, he, they're never going to see him again. And they're filled, Odunamai, they're filled with grief because he's leaving. Uh, they're, they're filled with grief and agony. Again, not because someone's torturing him, but this torment arising because someone or something that they love is about to be taken away from them. So just similarly, like we see Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man, he is in uh, agony. He's in Odunamai, but why? Um, because the riches that he has invested in his life in, that he's given himself to, that he's idolized and elevated over love for his neighbor, Lazarus, uh, that this rich man, his love for his riches has consumed his identity. The point he doesn't even, he's not even known by his name anymore. He's known by the riches that he loves. Uh, and all of those riches that he's invested in life in, They've been burned up in the fires of God's judgment. Like they're no longer there. And he is in agony. He is an odunamai um, because God's judgment has revealed 
the the condition of his heart that reality there's another image in that parable or that story of um the word that's used for torment it's the word uh it comes from a root it's called a bosonos and a bosonos was like a touchstone uh, that someone would use to see whether a jewel was authentic or fake and so if you uh had a jewel you'd take the bosonos you'd scratch the diamond let's say and you'd see uh if it was fake it would cut through right and so similarly here i think the picture is one where jesus is uh and around this this story, he's confronting the Pharisees, going, "You guys look all fancy. You got your shiny clothes. You're lovers of money, yet you don't care about the poor." Like the rich man in this story is really a picture of the Pharisees that Jesus is confronting in the chapter around it, and um, and yet he's also going, "But God is coming, and He's going to reveal you for the fakes you are." And I think that's the picture here, where the the rich man, like the Pharisees, are coming under the bosonos of God's judgment. And is exposing and revealing as shiny and as fancy as they look on the outside, that on the inside, their hearts are corrupt and that God's judgment will expose and reveal that reality. Um, and that's, that's going to be torment. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a bad, bad thing. I mean, you, I feel like you even see a foreshadowing of the kind of that thing today, when you look at leaders in say, something like the Me Too movement or things like that, where you see leaders who have been, esteemed or held on high and then skeletons come out of the closet stuff gets exposed and the agony and the shame that comes and the loss of position and privilege and prestige when uh, reality is revealed it's like that bosonos revealing reality becomes a, a judgment that leads to uh yeah the torment of that revelation yeah which and and I'm so glad that you you talked about that here on the podcast. Those were some of the illustrations and passages that I um, read through your book that were the most meaningful. Um, but even as you continue to draw out, these things are hidden, you know. And Jesus in judgment then reveals those things, and they cause torment. And I I guess my mind, the the passage that keeps going back in my mind is John three, where Jesus says, "I've not come into the world." to condemn the world, um, but I've come to save it. And then he says, here's the judgment that the light has come into the world, but that men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And mm. um, just the invitation to come into the light now with mm. Jesus is that invitation to be healed by him. And is that invitation to us laying ourselves bare before him to get that hell out of us now so that that torment and agony of what that will be like later is not going to be that's not going to be um our situation in exactly. the end and so I, I guess in my mind it's just it all comes together in such a beautiful picture um and it is very personal you know we're not just talking about a a doctrine to have about yeah. what's going to happen to those other people you know we this is intimately connected um, with our own lives and our own willingness to continually be healed and continually have Jesus drawing the, the hell out of us and putting it to death by his spirit. So, yeah. um, wow. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if I, if, I, if I cut you off, if you were still going in that same thought, but... but yeah, uh, no, that's great. I mean, yeah, I'd say the core question at, at, from that angle is, what do you want? You know, like, like, what is it that you really want um or desire meaning uh on the one hand you know I, I often talk about like if you go back to that 
gospel as a wedding proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say, you know, what does it mean to say yes to the wedding proposal, union with God? I'd say on the one hand, it's the easiest thing in the world. And it's also the hardest thing in the world. You know, and, and what I mean by that, it's the easiest thing in the world because it's free. Like Jesus paid it all. Like there's nothing we got to do. All we got to do is say, say, yes, Jesus wants to be with us. God wants to be with us. He has come for us in Christ. He has gone to the grave He and back. You know, he has paid the penalty. He is, he's done he's done it all. And so it's the easiest thing in the world because all we got to do is say, yeah, you know, is want it. Like, and yet I'd also say it's the hardest thing in the world um, because it costs us everything. Like from another angle, mm. entering into union with God means letting go of all those things that stand opposed to life with him. doesn't mean we're not going to make yeah. mistakes or, you know, sanctification is a process, all that. But, um, but, the hardest thing in the world because entering into union with God means letting go of my autonomy. Like, do I want worship over my independence? Do I want communion over my own autonomy? Do I want life with God or do I really prefer kind of life on my own? And at that level, I think it confronts us. Um, But the beauty of the whole thing is that God's goodness is driving this whole thing through and through. It's because yeah. of his goodness he's made us. It's because of his goodness he's coming after us. It's because of his goodness he loves us enough to respect, ultimately, like the decision that we would make or where what our hearts really want and desire in that sense. And, and whether God, I think at the core level, you're going to love of God, or is it really a love of ourself over and against God? Yeah. And I really think that is the key. Um, and we don't see it a lot of the time. Um, we, we, we can minimize or reduce sin to a list of specific actions that I personally never commit and then go on my merry way and, and actually keep Jesus at arm's length without even knowing it. Um, and so I was wondering, Josh, I know we've just got a few more minutes left. Would you mind sort of wrapping us up by, by taking us in that direction? Um, you, you listed in your chapter six, I think it was called freedom from or for, and you had talked about um, democracy, uh, living in the suburbs, and being on Facebook as being these categories of ways that we kind of live our own life and and leave God out. Would you mind? Can you do that in a succinct amount of time? And then that'll be yeah. the last thing we talk about. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So yeah, in the last last chapter in this section, freedom from and for. Um, so I have kind of these three metaphors, like hell is hell is democracy, hell is the suburbs, and hell is Facebook. And what I mean by that, I'm using them as metaphors. I, I, I enjoy living in democracy. I've had great experiences in the suburbs and I'm on Facebook. So I, I'm not hating there. But uh, what I mean by that as a metaphor is going, um, I think in the gospel, we see there's really two definitions or versions of freedom. Uh, one version is, is freedom from, kind of emphasizes uh, freedom from God, freedom from other people, freedom from even myself to, you know, the... Yeah, that that I'd say is the predominantly the the American emphasis or version or definition. Freedom means freedom from freedom. For, don't tread on me. Give me my own space. Do whatever I want. You know, like freedom is uh, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Just let me do my own thing. The other, and I think more the biblical vision is freedom for. It's uh, that ultimately freedom from God. We would say is slavery. It's it's the root of sin. You know, like that liberation is freedom for us to be for God, to be for others, to be for 
God's world, to be freed from all those things that would hinder us from being able to fully love God and love others well, and to love ourselves as we are known and loved by God, you know? So, um, so the freedom from and for, and I'd say like that at, at its root, like the logic of hell, this is where I kind of trying to get into like the logic of hell. Um, the, hell is rooted in the logic of freedom from. And so to give two examples or three examples of that, again, I'm using these metaphors, but the first hell is democracy. And I'm inspired a lot in this chapter by a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. If you ever get a chance to read that, listeners, it's, it's a great one. Uh, but he's kind of exploring kind of the logic of hell as a place. Why would people choose that? And he's giving illustrations of, kind of like the logic behind why someone would want or desire um, hell over the kingdom in essence. Right. And so democracy, there, there's this image in, in there, but of where he kind of says at one point, his guide says, well, at the end of the day, there's ultimately like two types of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who, to whom God says, thy will be done. I kind of go on like at the end of the day, there's this question of, do we want to say to God, your will be done, or would we rather have God say to us like, no, your will be done. And what I mean by democracy is going like at, at the end of the day, um, I, I'm, I, I'm glad to live in a democracy, but, uh, but there is a sense of going like our collective life as a people speaks that by and large, like we would rather rule ourselves than rather than bend the knee to God. Like that we prefer mm -hmm. life lived on our own terms over and against life submitted to the lordship of christ and you know like we uh when given the choice <laughs> uh we vote for life on our own terms so to speak right and so uh, i love there's a quote by uh rich mullins where he says the effect of like uh, problem with democracy it's not so much bad politics as bad math uh, a thousand corrupt minds are just as bad as one corrupt mind <laughs> and i think there's a truth to that i mean I, I would say maybe it's it's not so much uh as as bad maybe it's um can be can become as bad or you know like uh tyranny dictatorships all that is horrible but we do see um within democracy as well that uh, we still have can have the problem of a thousand corrupt minds who prefer life on our own rather than life with god and so we just kind of see like at that level like we prefer the logic of hell when it comes to god by much we we want it why, why would anyone choose hell well we choose it every day <laughs> like we we choose yeah. given the space and the choice we choose life without and apart from God as a society. The next movement, the hell is the suburbs, is kind of when we prefer not only freedom from God, we also prefer freedom from one another. And there is just kind of the, the image of um, in the great divorce, people keep moving farther and farther away from each other. It's kind of the sense that they keep fighting. And so they keep the solution is there's endless space in hell. So rather than reconcile or deal with it like people just keep moving away from one another and that feels like a great image for you know i think the, the person he wants to go visit napoleon but he's like okay that's like twelve thousand light years out there because just how far he's moved for <laughs> you know yes and and there i think there's this piece of like um i'm using the suburbs there is just an image of uh you know we we move our houses further and further apart and then even within our houses i have a lot of friends who grew up and i go visit my high school and they never even saw their family because everyone had their own room further away where everyone could have, have their own TV mm -hmm. kind of live, live their own life with big fences to keep the neighbors away and then bigger rooms to keep each other away. And it's almost like we're fighting for more and more space to be apart from one another. And, um, I don't think it's just a 
Western thing or like you look in other parts of the world and it's often the case that as soon as there's the money and the technology and whatever that when people get the opportunity, we kind of want more and more space from one another. And so we, we prefer, and I think it's good to have solitude and space and this kind of thing, but uh, there's just kind of this, this reality though, that often we're not good at reconciliation at deep community at life on life. We seem to prefer more and more life apart from one another. And the third one, how is Facebook is just going, we often want freedom from ourselves. And there is a picture of, dude, we want the freedom to, rather than to receive our identity from God and who he says we are, to create and craft new identities, how we present ourselves to the world, who we uh, want to be seen as. Um, identity is a, almost like performance, like a, a type of performative identity to establish ourselves as worthwhile or meaningful or valuable or self-defined in the eyes of others in the world. Um, and at that level, it's like, it's kind of a freedom from ourself. There's a picture in the great divorce related to that as well that I, I won't get into, but it's kind of like the more the person crafts this other identity, the more his true self kind of diminishes or gets smaller and smaller. And at the end of the day, in the great divorce, the picture is one where hell is small. It's kind of this irony that hmm. from within hell, it's this endless space because everyone can move further and further away from each other and further from God and all that. But inside of it, the author's like, it only fits, it can fit on like the tip of a blade of grass or something because it's it's almost like unreal. Like like we become smaller and smaller the more we seek freedom from God, freedom from each other, and freedom from ourselves. It's like we're fighting against reality there. And the reality is the reality of love, like the love of God that orders and sustains and has created the universe and holds all things together. And to fight against that, God is to fight against the love that holds us together you know yeah well i'm really thankful that you you kind of wrapped us up with that image um and definitely yes listeners uh go read the great divorce and read it again and then read it again so that would be my my plug for the book too but but josh you've really pulled out such uh, such significant illustrations and to use it as you know democracy the suburbs and facebook and then pull lewis in i, I really appreciate your down-to-earth um, connections of uh, your marriage proposal illustration that's gripped my my mind and heart um, ever since I, the first day I read it just thinking yeah wait a minute how does this work what's the logic and then for you to so graciously and pastorally present us with the reality the fact is if we're honest we're choosing this reality all the time and so you know Jesus, have mercy on us as we extend your mercy and compassion to other people. Um, so thank you so much for jumping on this show and talking with us and sharing with us your heart, your book, uh, the scriptures. And uh, um, if if some of our listeners want to find you out in the internet world or you know on Facebook while they are crafting a true identity of themselves and not a fake one, um, <laughs> How, what, what, what's the best way to try to connect with you or to follow you? Yeah, no, it's great. I have a, um, you know, I'm on, on Twitter. It's at GRB or what is it? At Butler Josh. And then, uh, uh Instagram, GRB PDX and, you know, Facebook, just my name. I have a website, uh, joshuaryanbutler.com. And yeah, I would love to stay in touch with folks out there. That is so great. Well, again, Josh, I'm really thankful that you um, stepped or that you got on here with us and just to talk with us and share with us your book. I will make a link to 
to Josh's book on the show notes of this episode so that if those of you want to get on Amazon and, and find that, it's well worth the read. We left two-thirds of the book out, didn't even talk about, and he's got another book too. So Josh, again, thank you for this. Um, I wish you the best and God's blessings on your church ministry, on your family. And um, again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was great being here. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, after listening to a conversation like this one, particularly on a very sticky topic like hell, you might have some questions. Um, if you were anything like me uh, when I read through his book the first time and hear you having now listened th to Josh himself explain his way through this section of his book, you may have been scratching your head. You might have been disagreeing with him. You might have said, wait a minute, I have never read that verse quite the same way he's reading it. How is it that he's seeing the things that I'm, I've never seen before? And again, this is very much in line with my podcast. This does not mean that what Josh is saying is absolutely true or that the way you've thought about things before need to change. But what I love about great thinkers and what I love about people like Josh who travel the world and who see things in different cultures and are trying his best to make sense of what he sees in the world versus what he knows is true about the character of Jesus. And he's not afraid to address these big time topics and to help people who are not believers to walk into the truth of who might Jesus really be, even with some doctrines and beliefs that Christians hold to, which do not seem consistent with the belief in a good and righteous Jesus. And so I'm very thankful for these kinds of conversations. And if this has prompted any questions for you, I always would encourage you to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Of course, I'll make links in the show notes to Josh's stuff for his book, for ways to connect with him. You might have questions that you would want to ask him directly, and I would encourage you to do so. He's very accessible and would be more than happy, I'm sure, to reach out and talk if any of you have questions or thoughts um, as well. But understand, um, I'm in the process of growing. I'm in the process of learning. But I do think Christians ought to be leading the charge in taking upon ourselves the responsibility of doing the hard work, of thinking critically, of analyzing, reanalyzing, and not holding so closely to the things we think we know are true in order to make room for understanding how might there be a different way of thinking about this. And again, that's the effect that Josh's book had on me the first time I read it. And now just sitting with that and taking those same ideas and, and looking back into familiar passages of scripture, many new insights begin to surface and I begin to see the heart of Jesus even clearer. And so I guess in a sense, I'm tipping my hand saying that I do like the way he presents this, but I wanted Josh to be the one to explain it because I think his explanations are so much richer and clearer than anything I've yet been able to come up with on my own. And so that's why we're doing the By the Book series, as I've already shared. You know that we need one another, and God has equipped various people with different life experiences, different minds, different ways of reading His Word and understanding Him. And when they're kind enough to share those perspectives with the rest of us, we all can grow together. So thank you so much for continuing to tune in. 
I would encourage you, if you've ever gotten into discussions with someone about hell, um, you might want to share just this episode with them. I honestly, listening to the way Josh talks, this episode may be even one you can share with someone who doesn't even know if they believe in the gospel or believe in Jesus at all. And so you might want to just share this episode, and that would be great. You can direct them to me too if they've got any questions and wanted to interact, or just let them listen to it and just... um, go right on their own merry way. So thankful for all of you. If you could take the time this week to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. Thank you so much to those who have done that already. Thank you to those who have supported this podcast with a financial gift on a monthly basis. That's just, it's tremendous. And I am able to buy microphone equipment and recording equipment and more resources so that I can continue to study as we work our way through Revelation and then back through other portions of the Bible, um, your encouragement financially allows me to continue to encourage you. So thanks so much for that. Until next time, have a great week. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.